Ezekiel 12. So a few years ago, actually probably more than that, my daughters were very young at that time. We were driving home, there was some road work, and I passed by them. And at dinner, I thought, that's a good object lesson. I want to teach them about authority and kind of who you listen to. And so I said to my girls, they'd been really interested in kind of what they were doing. It was right at the end of our driveway. Like, what are they doing? I said, when we drove by those people, how could you tell who was the boss? And one of my daughters just said, who cares who the boss is? Well, that's not going to work. So I said, okay, let's say if you found the boss, they would give you a piece of candy. And then Carissa, my oldest, she was about four at the time. She goes, if we find them, will they give me a horse? Whatever. They'll give you a unicorn, the Oompa Loompa. I don't care. Just let's play the game. So finally, we get past that. I said, how would you know who the boss is? So Isabella, she was about three at the time. She said, the one that's God. Well, God doesn't do road work. And so she said, why doesn't he? <laughs> ah, I'm like, this is not going the way I want. So then Chris is like, um, you would look for the one with the shirt that says, I'm the boss. I said, sweetie, have you ever seen a shirt like that? No, but it would be very helpful. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. My wife is just looking at me like, huh, what's going on here? Then Bella goes, it'd be the strongest guy. I'm like, are you trying to insult me now? I mean, this is getting worse and worse and worse. I said, here's how you know who the boss is. It's the one that everyone else listens to. He's the guy that's telling other people what they're supposed to do. He's the guy in charge. And my wife looked at me and she said, good job, boss man. (laughs) This section of Ezekiel is essentially that. Who do you listen to? Who has authority? Who should you be allowing to speak into your life? Because what you're gonna see is they make a real big mistake. So if you've been with us in Ezekiel in chapters one through 11, I title that God's gone. And we saw at the end of chapter 11, God packs everything up in the temple, gets in his Godmobile, and then he heads out to Babylon, right? It's essentially God saying, I'm done here. I'm gonna go with my people where they're at. Exiles in Babylon, I'll be with them. So in chapter 12, We start a new section that goes all the way to chapter 24, and this section is judgment. In the vacuum God leaves behind, in pours judgment. And in the first section, up to chapter 16, we get the reason why. And it goes like this. They believe lies, they're given bad hearing aids, they become fruitless, and then they're unfaithful. And that's our outline for tonight, okay? But as Ezekiel does, he almost always begins with a play. And then he gets prophetic. So he does the same thing. In chapter 12, he gives this play, and then he starts to give commentary on his play. So let's jump in. Chapter 12. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have ears, eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. As for you, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage 
and go into exile by day in their sight. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. This is one of God's favorite terms for Israel. You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile. And you shall go out yourself at evening in their sight as those who must go into exile. In their sight, dig through the wall, it's of his house, and bring your baggage out through it. In their sight, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder and carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face that you may not see the land, for I have made you a sign for the house of Israel. And I did as I was commanded. I brought out my baggage by day as baggage for exile. And in the evening, I dug through the wall with my own hands I brought out my baggage at dusk, carrying it on my shoulder in their sight. Ezekiel, he'd be a fun dude to have babysit your kids, wouldn't he? Like he digs a hole in his wall and goes out it. What kid would not love that? Today would be he'd have to take a chainsaw. My kids would love that. You'd come home to a new door. So Ezekiel, once again, is just doing these things And all the people in this refugee camp are just watching him. At that time, they'd have mud homes or brick homes. He digs a hole in his brick home, packs up like an exile bag. It'd be just enough stuff so that you could make it for a while your most precious possession. That's all you'd have. So imagine if your house is on fire. What would you go get? I would get, I have a King James Version wide margin Bible that I have bought 21 years ago. And I've written notes in the margin of that, but I would grab that. That is really important to me. Probably grab my MacBook Air. And then I'd probably wake up my wife like, hey, there's a fire now. You should get out. Right? It's the most precious things that you really want. So Ezekiel packs up his King James, whatever his Bible is. He gets it, his Moses version, gets it all together. Then at dusk, he puts it out the hole, crawls out through the hole, grabs his stuff and disappears into the night. So now God interprets this play. Verse 11. Say, I am a sign for you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. And the prince who is among them, he does not call Zedekiah the king, who is the king that this is going to happen to because Zedekiah was set up by Nebuchadnezzar. He's not really a king, he's a puppet king. So he's called the prince. Ezekiel will not refer to him as the king. Is among them and shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. And they shall dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He shall cover his face that he may not see the land with his eyes. And I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. So he comes to the land, but he doesn't see the land. Why? Well, 2 Kings 25 tells us when he's taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, his eyes are gouged out. So he's brought in, does not see the land. And this is how it ends, verse 26. And the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, 
the vision that he sees is for many days from now. And he prophesies of times far away. Therefore say to them, thus says Yahweh God, none of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares Yahweh God. What they were saying in Jerusalem as they heard these prophecies coming back to them was, it's not for us. We're gonna live a good life. This will never happen to us, not in our days. And so they had this false kind of hope and it launches us into chapter 13, which is the reason why they go into exile, the reason why they have problems. And I've titled chapter 13 as this, they believe lies. So check this out. Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse one. The word of Yahweh came to me. So now plays over, prophecies become, or the prophecies now become. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among the ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in the battle in the day of Yahweh. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares Yahweh, when Yahweh has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word like the tail wagging the dog. Yet, have you not seen the false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have spoken, declares Yahweh, although I have not spoken. They start believing these lies. So you have this group of prophets that are in Israel and they're lying. They're saying, this is what God has told us. Things are gonna be great. There's no problems. Look out, we know the future and the future is awesome. Be very careful of that. Be very careful of trying to tell the future when you're not sure of it because mistakes can be made. I think about my own kind of growing up time. I grew up in a period of time when it seemed like every single year, somebody was writing a book or somebody was writing something that said, Jesus is gonna come back right now. Did you grow up in that time? So 1988, there's a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Anyone read that book? It was a bestseller by Edgar Weisenart. He was a retired NASA engineer. Be careful of engineers and prophecy, right? If it takes calculus to figure out the prophecy, probably not right. So when it did not happen in 1988, Edgar Weisenart wrote another book. Guess what it was? 89 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1989. He kept doing that over and over and over again. And so there's all this kind of yeah, it's going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. No, it's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. Y2K, it's got to happen. This word's got to happen. That word's got to happen. And when I found myself, I'd be like, ah, la, ah, And finally, you just kind of like, I don't know anymore. I don't know. This feels like um, a delayed hope, a deferred hope marks, makes the heart sick. So personally, where I've gone is I am super, super careful of extrapolating beyond what Scripture says. I'm super careful of that. 
So I've quit the planning committee and I've just joined the welcoming committee. I believe Jesus is gonna return at the exact right moment. And I really trust him to figure it out. And in the meantime, I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to be doing. Because when you don't, look what happens here. Verse five, it says this, you have not gone up into the breaches or built up the wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of Yahweh. What happened was they said, peace, don't worry. We're never gonna be attacked again. So what happened to the walls? They left crumbled. In fact, it's gonna take Nehemiah to come back and rebuild the wall many years later. They just said, ah, we don't have to worry about it. We're at peace. So they stopped taking care of what they needed to be taking care of. It's dangerous. It still happens today. I know a couple pastors. They're a little bit older than me. They decided, I'm gonna opt out of social security. You can do that as a pastor. And I don't need to worry about any kind of inheritance. You know why? Or inheritance. Any kind of retirement. You know why? Jesus is coming back. So right now, they're struggling. And they've told me that. Dude, make sure and save money. Because I did not. Now, Jesus may come back tomorrow, but you know what? That's not gonna change the fact that I'm still gonna plan and be a Proverbs kind of person because my decisions to do good with finances are not just for this life. You know what they're for? They're for my eternity. That it's shaping me and building my character. Whether Jesus comes back tomorrow or not doesn't change the fact that I wanna be the kind of person that is a good steward of the resources that he has given to me. And sometimes divination almost can cause people to be like, ah, we don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. Ah, it's okay. Be careful of that. I don't do it. These guys did it and the city suffered because of it. The wall's broken down. The breaches are not there. They stay that way. The city actually suffers for 70 plus years because they don't do what they're supposed to do. Dangerous. They're believing these lies. So God compares it to this. I love this comparison. Verse 10, precisely because they have misled my people saying peace when there is no peace, be careful of preachers that only preach peace. They don't talk about sin or judgment or repentance or any of those important things. It's all good, it's peace. You've just preached peace because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with white rock, whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain and you, O great hailstones, will fall and a stormy wind breaks out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Here's what they're saying. Modern translation, you guys are painting over dry rot. You're not really going after what the problem is. You're just painting over dry rot. But there's coming a time, verse 13 and 14, where God says, I'm bringing a storm. I'm gonna bring a storm. It's gonna knock this wall over and everyone's gonna know you painted over dry rot, that you were liars. And the storm is coming from me. I'll expose it. I love that. I love that God exposes when people paint over dry rot. We have tons of those examples in our history. Does anyone here remember a guy, his name is Peter Popoff? Anyone remember that name? Yeah, if you're a little bit older, you should remember that name. 
He was massive in the 1980s. He was a faith healer. He was as big as anyone. And pulling in millions of dollars. In fact, they say he, pull, he was pulling on an average of $4 million a year in the 1980s until ABC went to one of his things. Remember this? So ABC goes and he's healing all these people. He would call out like, uh, row 28, seat F, you have a bad back and God's healing you right now. He was that guy. He's the guy that started that. So ABC comes and they're kind of noticing this and they notice Peter Popoff, faith healer, is wearing a hearing aid. Isn't that ironic? If you're a faith healer, why do you need a hearing aid? Heal yourself, right? So they're like, that seems strange. So they brought in a guy with a computer that scanned radio signals and they start picking up these radio signals and his wife would send him back, collect prayer cards, see the ones that were easy, not to do with the amputated leg, but the guy with the bad back. And she'd write down, okay, where'd he go? F27. And she would call them in. F27 has a bad back. And then Peter Popoff right up there would be like, F27 has a bad back. So he's exposed, right? If you remember that. ABC goes on 2020, big thing. Um, and, and he just disappears. 10 years later, 1999, he reappears with Russian magic water, holy water. And if you buy this, you'll do really well. Here's what's so sad. By 2003, he's bringing in $9 million. By 2005, he's bringing in $23 million. And, and I'm like, you, are you kidding me? God's like, I exposed this dude. Are you kidding me? You're back believing him again. So there's two sides to this thing. First, we got to recognize when there's paint over dry rot and stop listening to it. We need a lot of people that do Acts 17:11. These guys were more noble than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures to make sure what Paul was saying was right. A group called the Bereans. Man, we need people like that. I love chatting with like the older generation, people that don't have seminary degrees or any of that kind of education, but for 50 years, they've just read the Bible. And one guy said this, they have what he calls itchy nose syndrome. Like that's dry rot, man. I just know that's not Jesus. I just know that's dry rot. We need a lot of people with itchy nose syndrome. I just know that's not right. That's not Jesus. I can smell dry rot underneath that. We need tons of people like that. So what happens with these people is they start believing these lies. And the next step is this. And, and, and to me, it's really sad is all of a sudden they succumb to um, a bad hearing aid. Look at chapter 14. And I think this happens still today. I'll give you some examples of it. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me. We've already looked at the elders of Israel, not the best crew. And they sat before me and the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. By the way, this is the first time in the Old Testament that idolatry is not seen as something outside of a person, but idolatry is seen as something inside of a person, which is a massive New Testament principle. Colossians 3, 5, friends for instance. So it's not just his external worship, it's actually internal. It's amazing. Tuck that away because it's going to be real important in Ezekiel. And set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says Yahweh God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart 
and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, Yahweh, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Here's what's frightening. You're believing lies, these lying prophets, chapter 13. Now, now, all they're going to hear is lies. Even when they're inquiring of God, how is God going to answer them? He's going to answer them like they're idols. I'm going to answer you just like your idols would answer you. Then you can skip down to verse 7. For anyone in the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, Yahweh, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, Yahweh, have deceived that prophet. How crazy is that? And I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people, Israel. What did God just say? You're just gonna hear lies now. You wanna believe lies. If that's the direction you wanna go, fine. When you come and you actually wanna listen to me, if you have idols in your heart, what you're gonna hear is more lies and more deceit. Matt, that sounds crazy. God doesn't do that anymore, does he? Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses 10 and 11. Read them. It says there that they hated the truth. And so it says that God sent a strong delusion to them so they would not be able to even see the truth anymore. Oh, it still happens. That if you say, you know what? I don't want any of God. Forget God. I don't want to listen to God. I don't want any more. God says, fine. I'm going to just give you over to your own delusion. You're going to walk around completely deluded. That's frightening. Have you ever seen somebody just completely deluded? I don't want to use examples of people, so I'll use this example. It's safer. I don't offend anybody. Uh, a number of years ago, we had 11 hens and we needed a rooster. So a friend of ours had this. It was, a, it was the smallest rooster I've ever seen in my life. It was the size of an African sparrow, just tiny. And they gave us this little teeny rooster. And so we took this little teeny rooster down and let it go in our chicken coop with the 11 hens. And so he gets out and he like kind of gets out and he's looking around a little bit and he sees his 11 hens and he's like, heaven, <laughs> this is awesome. And he just went into this mode where he just got all kind of stiff. If you've ever seen a rooster do it, he just starts like doing this like right by the front of these, these hens, like check me out. And he's making these little crowing sounds. And one of the hens is like watching him. And then all of a sudden that hen just took off full speed, dove into the side of that little rooster, grabbed a hold of it. Flesh and feathers are flying, squawking and all this. And that little, my, my daughter Carissa named the rooster, uh, Mr. Chief Peanut. He finally gets loose, flew up over the fence and he was gone and we never saw him again. <laughs> I looked at my wife and I said, that's marriage counseling a lot of the times, right there, <laughs> gone. He's deluded, man, are you kidding me? You're the size of a sparrow. There are people that they're just deluded. 
And because they've taken this idol into their heart, it's like they can't hear truth anymore. You ever talk to people like that? I sat for, oh, it was well over an hour with a guy and he is into growing recreational marijuana and he's really wanting, I think he wanted my check, my, hey, it's okay. So he starts just talking to me about it and I'm listening and I'm just asking him some questions about it. I'm like, okay, okay, tell me about this. And he just come back from this Las Vegas, like this big event. I really love this guy. And, and at this Las Vegas event, there was all this like, they're just, it's propaganda. Just pumped into him, pump, 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 pump. I'm like, okay, all right, okay. And he's like, man, God has me there, I think. I'm able to pray for people. He's got all this kind of stuff. I'm like, okay. I said, here's what I wonder. I said, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall because these guys didn't. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall and there's an attack against that rebuilding. And Nehemiah looks at his workers and he says this, what we're doing is a good work. I said, bro, when you go to work every day, can you say what Nehemiah says? What we're doing is a good work. It's repairing the wall of the city. It's making this a better environment. Things are better in Grant's past because of what we're doing. Like Nehemiah was able to say to all of his workers, we're doing a good work. We're gonna leave this city better than when we found it. It's protected. It's safe for children. It's better. And he just starts, you know, okay, okay, okay. Just, it was like, it was like talking to a wall. And we just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I finally said this to him. It felt like this for a long time, for 55 minutes. And then I I just left with this. I said, bud, and you got a son. You're a good dad and you love your son. I said, "Here's, here's, here's what I know. Every place that marijuana has been legalized recreationally, teenage use has gone up. And he's like, well, I'm not sure about that. I said, okay, I'll, I'll give you the reports. You give me the reports that say something else. Because right now the report I have says every single place where it's been legalized, it's gone up. Okay, you show me other evidence. Oh, I, don't, I don't have it right now. Okay, whatever then. I said, tell me this. When your son turns 13, you want him smoking pot? And it was dead silent. And he just looked at me and goes, well, I'm only gonna do it for a couple of years. What you just told me then is it's not a good work. Oh, I don't know. It's back to the same thing. It's like you get in so deep to something, you can't hear truth anymore. That's really what God is saying happens. When we take these things, these idols into our heart, they just start to inform everything about us. Man, bro, it's not a big deal. My wife's okay with it. Yeah, but God isn't. God's not okay with that. Well, you know, I only tried it once. Yeah, too many times. I'm the exception. No, you're not. There's not one exception. When you take an idol into your heart, it starts to inform everything about you. It's like the fake news thing. Like people that believe fake news, I just listened to this great podcast on fake news. When you believe a fake news story, it's almost impossible to get you to believe it's not fake. This not fake. And I'm like, I've known that for a long time because I had this one person that keeps telling me Obama's a Muslim. I'm like, bro, he's not a Muslim. I've been in Muslim countries. I know what Muslims do. They pray five times a day. No one's ever found Obama praying on a rug pointing toward Mecca. It's not true. You're believing. Like, and we go back and forth and it doesn't seem to matter. I'm like, ah, you're a conspiracy theory wacko. Come on. But I can't actually say that because I'm a Christian. So I gotta be like, you know, brother, may I pray for you? <laughs> but it's crazy. Don't let idols into your heart because they pollute everything. The heart is the center of you. What happens to these people is they can't hear truth anymore. 
All they're hearing over and over and over are the lies of their idol. But here's the good news. God says, I'll be the deception for them. I'm gonna give it to them, but here's why. Look at verse 11. It's always redemptive. That the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves anymore with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares Yahweh God. What's the whole purpose? I want them to return holy. I'm gonna give them completely over to their garbage, 100% strong delusion so that, so that they come back to me. It might be like this. When I was younger, I lived at 717 8th Street, right next to Grants Pass High School. House is gone now, it's a field. It's like seven years old. And I ran around with a bunch of little seven and eight year old kids there. And one of the kids one time found a little can of chewing tobacco. And so as seven year old boys were like, I dare you to take some. So we all like took a little chew, grossest thing in the world. Made my head spin, I felt nauseous and sick. Well. One of the boys, his dad found out about it. That dad marched down to the store, bought a whole thing of chew, and forced his son to chew the whole thing. He got green, puked all over the place. But you know what? I grew up with that kid. He never chewed again in his life. It was like the dad was doing what God does right here. I'm giving you the whole can. I'm giving you it all 100% foolproof. Why? So you never do that again. So that you return to me holy. And so God says, they're lying, man. Here's the truth of what's going to happen. Verse 12. And the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off, cut off man and beast. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their their righteousness declares Yahweh God. And God actually repeats this again, verse 19. Or if I send pestilence upon the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares Yahweh God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver, deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Here's what God's saying. Remember Genesis 18, where God comes to Abraham and says, I'm destroying Sodom because of its sin. And what does Abraham start to do? Hey, 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 God, if there's 50 righteous people in that city, would you spare it? And what does God say? Totally. Oh, okay, okay, great. Spare me one more time. I, I got one more question for you. If there's 40 people that are righteous in that city, would you spare it? Yeah, I'll spare it. Okay, okay. one more. Okay, just one more. I promise, just one more. If there's 30 righteous people in that city, would you spare it? Yeah. I know what I said before, but you know what? Is there 20, if there's 20 people, yes. He gets all the way down to 10 righteous people. And then he assumes there's gotta be 10 righteous people. There's not, right? That's what this is saying. What had been said in Jerusalem was, look, there's 10 righteous people in here. We're saved, We're good. It's not going to happen to us. God's saying, listen, if you had the all-star team, if you had the dream team in that city, 
I would save them out, but I would not spare the city. You guys are too far. If Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther and you name it, if they're all, no, it's still going down. That's how definitive this judgment is. And then he says, here's how you know I was right. I love this, verse 22. But behold, some survivors will be left. Now, what kind, you think it's the good people or the bad people that will survive? Look who it is. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters, who will be brought out. Behold, when they come to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem and for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done it without cause. All that I have done in it, declares Yahweh God. What did he just say right there? When these guys move into your neighborhood, you're gonna know why I destroyed Jerusalem. Are they good people or bad people? Bad. When they're robbing and stealing and taking everything from you and there's violence and murder, you're gonna understand why I destroyed that city. It's kind of comical. These survivors are gonna come and they're gonna bring with them all their wickedness and you're gonna understand, oh my goodness, that's why. I get it, I get it. So you've got the play, you've got they believe lies. The next step down is they start having a bad hearing aid. They just hear the lies of their idols and then it affects their fruit, chapter 15. And the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man. How does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the, when the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it be used for anything? Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, when I have given up the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am Yahweh when I set my face against them and I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares Yahweh God." Very simple chapter. You believe lies, you have this bad hearing aid, and now you have no fruit. So he uses the example of a grapevine. What good is a grapevine for? Do people make chairs out of it? Flooring out of it? A table out of it? Rope out of it? Nope. It's good for two things producing fruit or burning in a fire. That's the only two good uses. If there's no fruit, it's cut off and it's thrown into a fire. So what God is saying here is this, Israel, I had this master beautiful plan for them. There to be this light to all the other nations that every other nation would look at them. They'd be a kingdom of priests, Exodus 24, a kingdom of priests shining out the Imago Dei saying, here's what happens when you allow God to be in your heart and not an idol. It's beautiful and brilliant. 
But instead of being that, they've got idols in their hearts. They're violent. They're worse, we'll find out, than the other nations. And so God says, since you're not fruitful, there's only other one use for you, and it's the fire. Jesus, he picks this same analogy up, doesn't he? John 15. He uses the vine. He says this, I'm the vine. You guys are the branches. And, and what is his desire for us? Fire or fruit, right? Over and over he goes, I want you to bear fruit, more fruit and much fruit. My desire for my people, Jesus says, is to be very, very fruitful. Galatians 5.22 stuff, love and joy and peace and long suffering and meekness and temperance. That's what I want, I want just fruitful people. So how do you become that kind of fruitful people? There's one word in there that Jesus says is the key. What is it? It's abide. If you abide in the vine, you produce fruit. It's that simple. And people get all esoteric with abide. Like you, you Google it or you read somebody's, there's books on abide and it's like, here's how you abide. You snuggle into Jesus's bosom. Like what in the world is that? You date Jesus. No, you don't. It's real simple. Jesus says this about us. We are his body. Abide just means stick with God's people. Something happens when you stick around God's people. You hear verses you need to hear. You hear, I think, prophetically, God's word going through people to you. The saints that are steeped in the scriptures speak out his truth. I hear about awesome opportunities to serve and to love. I get exhorted to love and good works, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Abide is just that simple. I hang out with the body. It's that simple. And what happens is I start learning and listening and being provoked and, oh, man, and exhorted and comforted and all the beautiful things that happen. My analogy is, is of a fire one time that I was putting out. And as I'm putting this fire, I'm, I'm moving all the coals away from the center. And my son Elijah runs over and he's like, dad, what are you doing? Kids and fires, right? It, it is the grace of God that any house makes it through the first six or seven years of kids. What are you doing, dad? I said, well, if you move all the coals away, they all go out. And like right in that moment, it was like, that's the Christian walk. If you move me out of the other coals of my life, I'm gonna go out. I might be hot for a little while, but slowly I go out. But you put me around red hot believers, what happens to me? Man, I get red hot. I'm excited about missions. I'm excited about what you're doing. I'm excited about helping out. What? Oh man, I can do that too. That's abiding. We stay fruitful by simply abiding. And God ends by saying, you have acted faithlessly and that's all chapter 16, I'll be super fast. So it starts believing lies, you're given a bad hearing aid. You just start hearing those lies. It's like you can't get away from it. Your fruit is affected. And then you become an unfaithful bride. And what you see in here is there's two choices. First, we get God's choice. Look at verse one. And the word of Yahweh came to me. If you don't know this chapter, I'm gonna skip large portions of it because it's rated X. It's really really hardcore. Same with chapter 23. You're like, man, these are hardcore chapters. So again, I should say rated R. 
Again, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says Yahweh God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now we read that and we're like, so what? Modern translation, I would put it like this. God just said, listen, your dad was a pimp and your mom was a prostitute. That's what he's saying here. You had really bad origins. You are a bad photocopy of a bad photocopy, right? Number one, verse four. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field for you were aboard on the day that you were born. Number two, you're completely unwanted. You are a failed abortion is verses four and five. So back in that day, if you had a child, an unwanted pregnancy, then you would wait till you gave birth and then you would just take that child and you put them out in the field and the wild animals would eat them. Still happens today in India. Last time I was there, I was there for two weeks. And during those two weeks, two baby girls, two hours, three hours old, were found by the side of the road and they were brought to the orphanage that we were at. Because there, because of the dowry system, to marry off your daughter is very expensive. So they want boys, not girls. And so very often, the, the orphanage is packed with only girls. There's like, at that time, there was 22 little girls because that's what would be, same thing happens. So brutal. You, you, you had really bad parents and you were totally unwanted. But then look at what God's choice is. Verse six. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I love that verse. That's God's desire for us. No matter your background, no matter your parenting, no matter any of that, what's God's desire for us? John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and it more abundantly. Live. And I made you flourish. Love that word. Like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown yet you are naked and bare. I rescued you from certain death. Then verse eight, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were of the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares Yahweh God, and you became mine. He marries her, All right? If you know the story of Exodus, that's what Exodus is. It's a covenant of marriage. I married you. I chose you when no one else wanted you. I washed you. I took care of you. You grew up. I married you. I love this. 2,500 years ago, even today, when you looked at who you were going to marry, you always tried to marry up, right? You want to marry up. So, when I was in India, they have arranged marriages still. And there was this great girl, his name is 
her name is Percy's. And she had not been married yet. She went to college in England, had a degree, just an extremely brilliant young lady, daughter of uh, Moses and Sarah Jam. And like I talked to her about like, how do you feel about this arranged marriage thing? Because you've been in, in England for a while. They don't do that there. I mean, what, what do you think about that? That your dad and mom get to choose your future spouse. What do you think about that? And this is what she said. She goes, oh, I'm so glad to have my dad's help on such an important decision that's going to affect the rest of my life. Why would I not want his wisdom for that? Immediately I said, Carissa and Bella, come here for a second. You got to hear this, right? So I said, okay, then what's his criteria? You would not believe the criteria. He needs to know five languages. He needs to have a college degree. He needs, I was just like, oh my goodness. Whoa, marry up. That was the requirement. What does God do here? Does he marry up? No, my, right? Here, the, off, the unwanted offspring of a pimp and a prostitute, and I want you. Is that not grace? Is not this the gospel? Isn't this 1 Corinthians 1? It's all right here. This is such a brilliant book. I grabbed you. I said, live your mind. I want you. I'm covenanting. I'm giving myself to you. It's amazing. It's brilliant. So then you just see from verses nine down, it's just, I, I clothed you. I gave you the best fine leather, silk. I adorned you with ornaments and bracelets. I put a ring in your nose, earrings in yours, just the best stuff, a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned. And, and then um, you grew exceedingly beautiful, verse 13, and advanced to royalty. You became a queen. I married down, but what did I do to you? I brought you up and made you a queen. It's amazing. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed upon you, declares Yahweh God. What's God's choice here? And I chose the unwanted. And because of my choice, I've elevated them up into royalty. It's so brilliant, so brilliant. That's God's choice. But now look at her choice. Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. I never imagined preaching a sermon at Edgewater and saying whore. It's kind of like, hmm. And it goes on and gets much worse from there. Her choice, God chooses and lavishes and loves and grace and all this stuff. And then what happens to her is this. Verse 15 says, but you trusted in your beauty. Who are we supposed to trust in? God. But instead, God actually warns them in Deuteronomy 8. Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna give you all this stuff. I'm gonna give you a good land. You guys are gonna be successful. I'm gonna give you all this grace. And he warns them, do not think in that day that you did it on your own and start trusting in yourself. Don't do that. But what does Israel do? They start to trust in themselves. Stop trusting in God. Forgetting where all these gifts came from. Forgetting where all this came from. Forgetting where life itself came from. They stop giving glory to God. Romans 1 says the same thing. It has almost the same exact kind of descent that you see. Very graphic in Romans 1 as well. And there it says this, 
The start of it, the start of this descent, this giving up, the start of it is, and they stop being thankful. That's the start of it. When you stop being thankful to God, who do you start trusting in? Who do you think the good stuff comes from then? Me, my efforts, my beauty, my elect, my strength. And we'll go down this same road as she did. You know how thankful being, you know how huge being thankful is? It's the cornerstone of everything Thanksgiving is. I have a book, one of the best books I've read by Dennis Prager, and it's called Happiness is a Serious Business. And, and he has this one little area where he just says this. Here's what we found. Unhappy people, we found the reason why people are unhappy. You know why people are unhappy? They're unthankful. That it's not money, it's not education, it's not status, it's, not, it's they're unthankful. That thankful people, even if they don't have stuff or don't have what we think they should have, they're actually happy. That it's the unthankfulness that leads to unhappiness. They're tied together. That unthankful people are unhappy. You see in the elder brother, in the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son comes back, has nothing. The elder brother has everything. Who's unhappy there? The older brother, because he forgets to be thankful. And, th and that book just goes on and says, happy people are, have, are thankful people have lower blood pressure. They stop addiction easier. They're less depressed. They have lower phobias. They're less likely to be addicted to pain medication. Alcoholism is lower. It just goes on and on and on. And this is the one that really got me. Gratitude starts to rewire your brain. When you're thankful, guess what happens to you? You become more thankful. It's like geometric multiplication. You just start becoming more and more thankful. You see more and more things to give thanks for. It's like when you express something emotionally, it builds. I'll give you the antithesis of this. If you're really angry and you go home, and you start talking to your wife about what makes you angry, what happens to you? Do you have peace that passes understanding? Do you have a joy undescribable? No, you get more angry, right? You're like, ah! Why? Because it's multiplying itself. That an emotion expressed increases. And we become more and more and more thankful. What happens is we find more things to be thankful for and we become happier people. But she didn't do this. She forgot to give thanks to God, trust in her own beauty, and she goes downhill. And it just gets worse. This chapter just gets worse and worse. I'll read verse 33. Verse 30, how sick is your heart? Skip over some of the bad stuff. Declares Yahweh God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorn payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of a, her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers bribing them to come to you from every side with your whoring. Just goes on and on and on. Verses 49 through 51 just says this, you're worse than Sodom, right? You're, I destroyed Sodom, you are worse than them. But then here's what I love and here's what we'll end on. Verse 59. Thus says Yahweh God, and, and you can read this chapter if you want, it's really horrific, but this is how God ends. Thus says Yahweh God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath 
in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and give them, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares Yahweh God. What a brilliant ending. God's choice, I chose you, son of a pimp and a prostitute, a failed abortion, I chose you. You went south on me, but guess what? I'm still gonna be faithful to you. I will not give up on you. And I will atone for you. Who, who ends up atoning? Right? This is just one of the most incredible, prophetic pictures of the work of Jesus Christ for you and for me. He atones for us. Doesn't matter who our parents were. Doesn't even matter what our past is. Doesn't even matter even after God has lavished grace on us, if we go prodigal, still God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God's character is so brilliant and so beautiful, it starts to really blossom in this chapter. It might be one of the hardest chapters, but it's also one of the most brilliant, showing his grace for us. That his choice, when he chooses you and me, he does not give up. So in one of my classes one time, we got in this endless debate about once saved, always saved, can you lose your salvation? And my professor, he said something I'll never forget. He said, when a, when a cucumber is pickled, it can never be a cucumber again. When God pickles your heart, you can never be cucumbered again. That he's the faithful one, even when we're faithless. Aren't you so glad about that? Because if I could screw up my salvation, I would. But he won't let me because he pickled me. And if you've believed in Jesus, you're pickled too. And it's really good news. So Jesus, we're amazed at your choice of us. Our heritage is not good. And yet you saw us and you said, live. And you've lavished grace upon us. And many of us, has, we've squandered that grace and yes, there's repercussions, and yes, there's issues with that, but you remain faithful. You are the great atoner. I pray that we would see in chapter 16 how beautiful of a God you are, that you do not give up on us, that you are relentless pursuing us because of your great love for us. And because we're loved, I pray that we would leave here this night equipped to love other people, that we would be conduits of that love. So remind us, not only of our past, but also remind us how you picked us and you will not let us go. And we'd move out in our work, in our marriages, with our kids, with that understanding, that stability, that rock solidness. And it would enable us to be fruitful, much fruit, more fruit kind of people. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.